had I had a someone on Twitter pointing out that like Matt was you know interrupting me a bunch. I'm like, no, no, no. Usually Matt is trying to stop me from interrupting him. We're doing hand signals, and they said, okay, I'm gonna calm myself down by the next time I listen to the weeds, just pretending you're all doing jazz hands the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> sure, exactly. Yeah. It's a Jewish family dinner. Welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am Matthew Iglesias. Uh, joining me today, we have uh, Mike Consul, who is a, a research fellow at the Roosevelt Institute, as well as a frequent Vox.com uh, contributor. And also Darland, who has been on the Weeds uh, many times, a, a longtime fan favorite, and who I, I'm glad to say is going to be uh, joining us regularly on Fridays, bring some bring some stability to the cast and more uh, Dara excellence. Hi, so, team. Hey. How's it going? So, going to be honest, transparent, that's how we do it in the digital media. It's a little bit weird because there is a tax reform vote scheduled probably for later today. Sometime while the show is being edited, maybe something is going to pass the Senate. Maybe it won't. Uh, these Republicans, if there's anything we know about them, it's that they are really bad at whip counts and vote scheduling. Uh, so anything can happen, but we want to Talk about something that I think we we do know from sort of the shape of the proposals that are out there, which is whether they get something done today or they need to kick it to next week, there's going to need to be some rejiggering with the House. There's concern about the fiscal parameters, uh, but something that's, that's really going on in both versions of these legislations is a, is a real effort to sort of pick some winners and losers in, in American society, decide what kinds of institutions, what kinds of people are, are valued and, and valuable. And, and it has, you know, profound implications for how America is going to work that sort of goes beyond the, the dollars and cents uh, fiscal impact of it. Uh, Mike, Mike wrote a, a big uh, piece about this, this for Fox. I, th- I think you said they were weaponizing the tax code. Yeah. Um, thanks for having me on. A long time listener, first time, first time caller. Um, to, to step back for a second, there's a reason that you can do this kind of thing because there's a lot of fuzzy ambiguity in the tax code. Um, you know, there's practical problems um, that this tax code sort of addresses about just how do you deal with things like how corporations depreciate uh, equipment, how you deal with tuition assistance. Is that a form of income? Um, there's a more philosophical problem to go with that practical problem of just what should we be taxing? What should the tax base look like? Should corporations be taxed at all? Which a lot of conservatives don't think. Uh, and you know the fact that they're so aggressively cutting the tax code reflects that kind of basis. And then there's issues with how does the tax code work as a rule, as part of the broader safety net and the broader kind of regulatory regime? Like, you know, do we have a tax penalty if you don't buy health care, which is removed? And I think what happens is every single one of these ambiguities is being pushed in a way that particularly harms democratic coalitions and blue state um, people, and it benefits people who are traditional Republican donor base. In uh, each one of those ambiguities kind of pops up in each of the House and Senate versions, and it's not ultimately what they're fighting about with whatever happens today. So I kind of, I'm interested in thinking about this as weaponizing rather than you know, using something that is kind of inherently a weapon, right? Like, I think when there are a lot of areas when we talk about policy that we're talking about the government trying to engineer a particular outcome, but that's not an outcome it can control, right? It's just kind of crossing its fingers and hoping that everything it predicts will happen is going to happen. You know, during the Obamacare debate, there was this kind of finger-crossed hope that it was going to bend the cost curve and reduce, you know, increased healthcare spending. That's 
that's how most policy works, right? There are certain things the government can do, and then it hopes that people behave in the expected way. When it comes to the tax code, it's much more direct, really. It's, you know, the government really can control how much money it's taking and therefore what behaviors it's rewarding, what kinds of people it's rewarding. So it seems to me that this is something that's kind of inherently built into the system, right? That it's not something that is just now kind of being used politically, but something that's being used politically in a different way. Right. I mean, I mean, you know, one of the provisions from from the House bill that's not, it's not that significant in overall financial terms, but people talked about a lot because it's uh, sort of outrageous, is they're they're taking away a sort of small tax credit that's available for public school teachers who buy school supplies for their classroom, right? And so, you know, I mean, you might ask, like, what? why is that in there in the first place, right? And, I mean, it's in there in the first place because it sounds nice. You know, it, it's something people would vote for, but also because teachers' unions, like, came up with it, right? It's like, this is something that we know a lot of our members do. Uh, it's a way we can help our members out. And it's, like, an incredibly fine-grained scalpel. You know, it, like, it doesn't cover if I buy some office supplies out of pocket and use them on a little notebook. It covers if teachers do it. And, you know, I mean, good for them in, in that case. But then you can take it away, right? And that's the kind of sort of like really small bore stuff that can happen. And particularly the the corporate side is is famous for, right? That like there's a different depreciation schedule for corporate jets than for commercial jets, right? And you can truly like micromanage like what kinds of behaviors you want to reward and, and which ones you want to, to sort of disfavor. And, and But then the tax code is also an important sort of structuring concept for American society. So you churches have a special kind of tax status, and one of the provisos on that has long been that a church can't be doing express political advocacy and, and electioneering, but the House bill would, would rescind that, right? So that's not really a—it's not what you think of as a tax policy measure, but it's a complete, you know, change in the sort of regulatory framework of, of the whole country. Right, and to stick with the teachers for a second, um, the House bill also expands the ability of 529 savings plans to go to private um, K-12 through schools, uh, or certainly private high schools, and I think it's K-8 right. through as well, which shows that there's very much a, a hit on the teachers' unions and a, you know, a gimme to more affluent parents who work in, you know, private schools or, or send their kids to private schools. I think one thing is the framework that has been used to discuss tax reform for a long time, and it's one that Paul Ryan and Republicans have used— is the idea of tax simplification. And the idea is that, you know, you're going to get rid of all these loopholes, you're going to get rid of all these deductions, and then you're going to use it to bring down rates overall. And uh, both sides of that equation have kind of fallen apart in this. One is that, and, and on purpose too, it was very obvious that they were going to do it this way. One is that there's a lot of new expansions. There's new deductions for tax um, expenditures uh, on the corporate side, which may or may not be good ideas, but are not simpler. They're not on a postcard, as the metaphor goes. Um, you know, we just talked about uh, 529 plans. And on the flip side, they're not bringing down rates for everyone. The, the large bulk of these savings are going to more aggressively bring down the corporate tax rate than you would have under a normal kind of tax reform. President Obama spent a lot of time trying to get rates down to 28%. A lot of people wanted that 25%. And that was kind of the focus for when it was the debate was about actual simplification. Now, they're, when they're talking about 20%, that's another $800 billion that has to come from somewhere. And it's coming from this, it's coming from blue states, and it's coming from a lot of juggling of what happens to taxpayers in 10 years that uh, is open for debate. So with the proposals that we've seen and like, you know, with the asterisk for the Senate bill, 
who would you say, you know, at Vox, we do a lot of like winners and losers, and usually it's very politically focused. But I think in this case, there's an obvious policy list of winners and a policy list of losers from these proposals. Who do you have in mind when you think of the like family or business that is going to be the biggest winner from this bill? I mean, I think that the sort of canonical winner in this bill is you live in what's already a low-tax state. You have a high income, and your income is derived from owning businesses primarily, right? There's even a, in the House bill, there's, I, I thought like one of the most hilarious things I've ever seen in place of political messaging is they're like calling out the idea that their bill, though it's good <laughs> for multimillionaires, that it's not good for Stephen Curry, right? Because like he works for a living. Uh, but it's like if you had Steph Curry's income, but your income didn't come from playing basketball in California, but came from owning businesses in Kansas, you're going really, really well. Now, if you own businesses in California, you're still doing pretty well. But like, like that's that's the biggest winner, I would say, right? It's like a, a red state business owner with a high income. Uh, House and Senate differ on exactly how much of a difference it makes, whether you own it as a pass-through or just own stock in publicly traded companies. But, but broadly speaking, that's the that's what that's what you're you're looking at is like like the big time winners right and um and, and the the business owner thing i think is really important to emphasize for a little bit because so much of our debate about inequality and who the economy is working for tends to tends to have had focused on managers and ceos and people who run businesses bosses uh, this was a big thing in the 90s literature, and it was the idea, well, like, Bill Gates is very rich, but he built Microsoft, right? And, and so on and so forth down the line. Since 2000, the research has shown that it's really, the people who have really benefited disproportionately are people who own things, not people who, like, show up, like, CEOs don't live lives like normal people, but they do show up and work at a desk. They do have a contract. Uh, owners, people who make their money from money, people who often like choose how much money to make by how much they're cashing out their their equities or other kinds of investments. That those people are going to disproportionately benefit, and they have been benefiting for the last fifteen years. And uh, across the metric, the last fifteen years have not been very good for workers. So I think that's one additional reason people are really anxious that on the idea that this will actually even do anything that's worth the trade off. I think the flip side of this is that you know you see a little bit of divergence between it used to be that the small business owner was a very important archetype in talking about stuff like this and i think that you know the entrepreneurs are still considered a very important you know they're the job creators they're the ones driving the economy they're the ones keeping america in first place globally but the idea of the entrepreneur has shifted away from small business ownership and into you know silicon valley unicorns right the idea is not that you're starting a business because starting a business is a good thing and you're going to employ a few people and you're like you know, running your Mexican restaurant in, you know, San Antonio. It's that you're going to make, you know, a billion dollars in equity and employ thousands of people. And I, it seems that that shift has allowed the kind of ownership fetishization to really get conflated with the idea of growing jobs and helping the economy. One really important example is Texas. I mean, that's what we have to be looking at um, because a lot of the stuff that is being tried here was just tried in Kansas, and it failed very remarkably. One thing that was noticed, uh, notable is um, pass-through businesses, a certain kind of business that is often framed as small business but is mostly not, uh, will have a very reduced tax rate. 
And what you saw in Kansas is not so, it's not just that rich people got richer, which you would expect from that kind of um, tax reform, is that nobody really created new businesses. All they did was restructure the businesses that they were already doing to qualify to pay less taxes. So instead of working for Vox.com or the Rose Institute, you become a contractor who is employed by them. And even though you're doing the same job, you get to pay less in taxes. And I think it's this bill, and I think there's a reason for it, because I think uh, Republicans are very keen on the idea of hiding wealth from taxation. They are trying to work out the loophole. They say they are trying to work out the obvious loopholes and problems that will follow from this. But the fact that we don't have a final bill and they may vote on it before you, this gets to your phone or uh, computer tells us that they're not taking it super seriously. Yeah, and I mean, there's a there's a sort of basic ambiguity in you know, policy thinking about taxes, there's a there's a there's an optimal tax theory literature, which has some, I would say, fairly conservative policy implications, but that does emphasize the idea that like collecting revenue per se is not a bad idea. Um, and then there's the I would say gut level, you know, conservatism, which is the idea that like re- spreading the wealth around, taking from the makers and giving to the takers is just like wrong. Right. And when it comes to tax enforcement, you really see the difference between those kinds of things. Right. There is no um, economic growth rationale for making it easy for people to avoid taxes. Right. Tax avoidance increases the like marginal collection burden on people who are paying their taxes. In a practical sense, like you see Republicans trying to reduce IRS enforcement funding, things like that. So there's like, in particular with this treatment, tax treatment of, of businesses, there's a difference between like, in theory, what this would mean, and in practice, what it would mean. We, of course, don't really know what it's going to look like in, in practice. Uh, but I I mean, I, I think we know. Um, the other thing that's, that's interesting to me about all of this is that there's a frequent sort of invocation of the small business, and in particular of the idea, which is accurate, that a lot of people who own small businesses actually have quite modest profits that they take home. Uh, but the structure of the tax benefit is it's a it's a deduction style structure in the in the Senate. It's just a low rate in the House. But either way, it means that the scale of the tax benefits you get is directly proportionate to your profits. So if you bring home eighty grand a year, you, you know, in in profits, this helps you out just a little bit. Or in the House bill, I think possibly not at all. Uh, whereas if you're bringing home eighty million, it, it helps you an enormous amount. So it's. It's a kind of they call these pass-through entities small businesses, but what they are is they're businesses that are owned by a small number of people. Um, many of those businesses are in fact small, uh, quantitatively, but most of the money is in really big ones. So, the reason that I think that Matt's point about like IRS enforcement is so important isn't just because this is a very different way from the way politicians usually approach like people's response to policy, like. It is generally a truth that individual people make rational decisions based on, you know, the, you know, the decisions that make the most sense to them based on what's given to them. And that that often means that faced with a different policy regime, they're going to change the choices that they make. You know, if to, you know, just bring up an example from immigration, because I mean, of course, when if there's a lot more Border Patrol agents on the border and you're used to coming back and forth from Mexico every year, you're going to choose to, say, stay in the U.S., as a lot of Mexicans did in the 90s, so that you don't get caught. Um, That's usually considered 
either a morally neutral thing or a morally bad thing. Even Republicans, even with things like regulation, like safety regulations that they don't usually love, they don't celebrate attempts to evade those necessarily. But when it comes to taxes, it's assumed that you're playing the system right if you're taking whatever response is necessary to hide your income to that know, makes do me whatever. smart as right. I, as I believe <laughs> right and that's and and the fact that that knowledge is not evenly distributed that not everybody has an accountant who can figure out the best way to hide their income is like not, it, it's a very relevant thing here especially because the things that are that have previously been built into the tax code to help lower income and middle income people that you know maybe you needed to go to a you know free tax legal aid clinic to figure out that you were you know eligible for the earned income tax credit and the child tax credit and all that sort of thing but it was available to you a lot of those kind of more progressive deductions seem to be getting targeted in this and so it seems to be a, a world in which even having even if you could have the knowledge you don't necessarily have the access to game the code in the same way um, right. And so um, one way to think of it is, uh, let's talk about the mortgage interest deduction. People do not like the mortgage interest deduction. It largely benefits people who can, uh, who are richer, people who own a home, um, people who itemize their deductions, people who have professional tax planning. Um, the House version reduced it to $500,000 the limit. The Senate does not, though it does um, reduce it for home equity lines credit and some other things. Let's talk about the House version for a second. That's $400 billion it's going to raise. And this is a real interesting um, uh, difference between conservatives and liberals. So you lower, you get rid of the you lower or get rid of the mortgage interest, and the House bill would have probably raised about $400 billion. You, that is money that is targeted to housing policy, right? It is money we spend in the tax code towards providing housing to people. It's poor and, and efficient. We don't like it. But you could imagine taking that $400 billion and um, giving a low-tax uh, a credit for low-income low households to get a mortgage. You could go the Iglesias route and bribe cities to upzone their places very aggressively. You could revolutionize buses and transit. I, I'm not deep in the woods on this, but that's money that we spend through the tax code. I'm doing air quotes you can't see um, on housing, but it's now going to the estate tax cut. It's now going to much more aggressively lower corporate rates than what most people thought um, would, would have been reasonable. And as such, it's really a it's a transfer away from social policy broadly towards a very specific bet on lowering taxes on corporations and the idea that that will lead to a broader prosperity, which I think is a very reckless and very dangerous bet. Okay, I want to take a break here, and then we should talk about salt, because that's sort of like the, the biggest yeah. one of these things. It's the holidays. A lot of people are giving away to charity, and, and most people who want to donate to charity would like to give money to good charities. Uh, but how can you actually maximize the good you accomplish for each dollar you give? Uh, GiveWell has the solution. They do in-depth, detailed research to identify evidence-backed, cost-effective programs that help the poorest people in the world. Their website, www.givewell.org, provides a really short list of top charities that have met GiveWell's exacting standards. Uh, they're unique because they focus on how much good a charity accomplishes. So it's like, how many lives does it save? Or, or how much does someone's income increase for each dollar donated? Uh, that's way more important than, than easier to answer but less significant questions like how much does a CEO make or how much overhead it has. Uh, so right now, their top charities do things like they fund programs to prevent child deaths from malaria. They provide direct cash transfers to very poor households in East Africa. All the details of the work are available for free on their website. They deeply vet scientific evidence for programs. Their charity reviews are accompanied by hundreds of 
footnotes. They publish quantitative cost-effectiveness models. So if you want to, you can dive incredibly deeply into the details. But if you just want to spend a few minutes, you go to GiveWell's top charities, leverage the thousands of hours their staff has put into finding exceptional charities. Okay, so one of the biggest deductions that exists in the current tax code is that you can deduct the taxes you pay to state and local governments. Um, and that's a that's a really there's a lot of money involved in it. And it's a really big deal to the finances of people who live in high tax states and who have above average incomes. Um affluent people, not not necessarily like the super duper duper multimillionaires, but it is definitely a, a regressive attribute of the tax code. And and this really highlights sort of both of the dynamics we've been talking about. Uh, This is pared back very significantly in the House plan. It's eliminated entirely in the Senate plan. And you could imagine a a progressive Congress taking this step and then using the money to, I don't know, expand earned income tax credit, uh, make child tax credit refundable, basically redirect it from being an upper middle class benefit to something that either everybody gets or that's targeted at low income people, uh, something like that. Instead, Republicans are pairing it back, uh, using it to finance what's basically a a corporate tax cut, and then kind of saying, uh, well, you know, it's fine. Our constituents aren't going to be hit by this. And it's, um, I mean, it's it's a little wild politically because in the House, it's like— genuinely not true that their constituents aren't paying it. Uh, but but also, it's a real, I mean, I don't know. It's just like a, it's a, it's a questionable set of priorities, I guess. So something that I've been interested in about this is it, it seems that there is, there are a lot of potential downstream effects, right? Like in the same way that we've just been talking about the tax code as this very blunt instrument, this seems like the kind of thing that could lead to a lot of unintended consequences or perhaps intended consequences that we can't really see yet. You know, one of which is if people who are super affluent, are people who are super affluent are more likely to be able to move to lower tax states, just like businesses have been able right. to move to lower tax, more deregulated states. The other thing and something that the New York Times has been kind of highlighting is this could create political pressure on higher tax states to lower their taxes, to reduce their safety nets. Both of these, though, seem like kind of bank shots. Like, it's not totally clear whether those are going to happen. And I I would be interested to know if we do have any insight into, like, what the likely downstream effects of something like this would be. Well, it's a straight-up tax raise on blue state America. Um, not just blue states. There's some uh, high-tax uh, high uh, red states. But in general, it's raising taxes without actually raising revenue on, on people who live in those states. So we should understand it as a, a big assault, a frontal assault. Um, there's a lot of debate about it as a philosophical matter. On one hand, it does emphasize local programs over federal programs. So if you are a big fan of localism or subsidiarity or you know f- uh, hyper-federalism, uh, in theory, you like this, but if you are an enemy of public programs broadly, you're against it. And I think the second wave of that has been definitely taken over in the Republican Party. Um, it's definitely going to put pressure on services. It's crucially, it's going to put pressure on expanding services, right? Because now, um, if you raise taxes, um, you no longer have that extra uh, footing, that extra kind of breathing space against federal taxes. Uh, a big thing is if you think. Taxes on rich people should be very high, like I do, like 60, 80 percent at the top marginal rate. Um, This actually capped it from going over 100 percent because in the mid-century period when tax rates were 90 percent and state and local taxes were 12 percent, you would have had 102 percent rate, on which uh, is 
I think it was maybe a little bit high, but let's see how radicalized I get by this bill passing. So, um, yeah, I think it's definitely going to have, it's going to make it harder to do things that are big public programs, and thus it's going to move towards more privatization, more just private services more generally, which I think, um, you know, it's not just that they want to change the federal model, they also want to change the blue state model as well. But I mean, this is also an area where my personal opinion, I guess, is that the JCT is, to me, is overestimating how much revenue this will actually raise. And therefore, everyone is overestimating the sort of net impact. This is the kind of thing, it depends on what exactly they end up with their final text coming out to be. But it's the kind of thing that's like quite gameable, it it seems to me. that If you think about like California, right, is like the quintessential high-tax blue state that this is bad for. Um, And it really is. If the California state legislature takes no response to this, this is just like hammering a sort of top third of California citizens. And maybe the Republican hope, the Democratic fear, is that California needs to respond to that by like willy-nilly cutting programs and, and slashing services. But California also has the option of cutting its state income tax and creating a progressive employer-side payroll tax that would still be deductible and would have the exact same revenue impacts. Um, California has a state corporate income tax, which I believe would still be deductible in most of the proposals that are floating around here, precisely because like Apple, Google, Facebook, California-based companies would be some of the biggest winners under the big federal tax reduction. It's going to give them enormous new fiscal scope to raise taxes on those companies. I mean, I'm not really sure what what happens, but like as somebody who believes in um taxes and public programs. I, I I resist like conceding in advance the idea that what salt going away de- means is that we have to rush willy-nilly into a kind of like race to the bottom, uh, capital flight terror scenario. Um, I, I don't think, I think by the theory that that is true already, all innovation and business investment should have ceased in the state of California like decades ago. Um, but like that's clearly like that's that's not actually how the world works, and people should not be like bluffed into believing that that's how the world works. I think that Connecticut, which is like a very affluent state whose economic trends have turned bad lately, has a sort of pretty specific problem here. I I do think that, like, they really are subject to tax competition. It's a really small state. It doesn't have, like, a big city, big hub, things like that. There are definitely issues here, um, but I I don't... I think the bigger problem with this is that Republicans have talked themselves into believing that this is going to finance their uh, gigantic estate tax plans, and and it won't really. So that uncertainty is something that I kind of have only recently rocked in this whole tax reform debate. And I think it's I think it's gotten a little bit lost because we have so f- so little idea of what this bill is actually going to do anyway. But, you know, for the reasons that Matt laid out, and at this point I'm going totally contrary to what I said at the beginning of this, you know, there are a lot of open questions about how individuals and states and businesses are going to react to this new tax regime. And because of that, and because the budget gaming is resulting in Republicans insisting that they're not going to let any of the tax cuts expire that they've written into the bill are going to expire because they had to say they were going to expire to get, you know, any kind of good budget score, but they don't want to 
you know, they don't they don't want the talking point floating around that a bunch of the middle class tax cuts expire in 2027. For both of those reasons, it is extremely likely that either the budgetary impact in terms of the deficit or the kind of regressive economic impact is going to be way different from what's currently being estimated. But only one of those is likely to be the case, right? It's either going to be this massive budget buster that blows a big hole in the deficit in 2027 because these tax cuts don't expire, or it's going to be this massive middle class middle class tax hike because they do, for example. And when we're talking about the uncertainty of those, I think it's been very easy for critics to say, well, it could be even bigger than a trillion dollars. Well, it could be the super aggressive thing. Yes, it could be either of those things, but it's important to understand that only one of those is going to happen because those are happening on contrary. They're they're contrary timelines. Right. And one, one last thing is, uh, I think it's worthwhile to think about what is permanent about this? What will be hard for Democrats to undo? And right now, the Senate bill repeals the individual mandate uh, in Obamacare, which will raise premiums. It'll do a lot of other bad things that will kick a lot of people off health care. It's not clear to me it's going to be super easy to go back and try to get the mandate back in there. I think people just move straight on to Medicare. Um, the estate tax being repealed entirely, um, I think, might be hard. It'll not be trivial to bring back an estate tax as opposed to just like raising it or lowering it. Um, a lot of this stuff with um, the way people are going to game the pass-throughs and restructure corporations so that they hide a lot more taxation, I don't think it'll be trivial to go back and fix that. So. While the benefits for middle-class people and working-class people are temporary in a strict sense in the bill and very ambiguous about what happens to them in the out years, one can imagine them becoming permanent. Um, a lot of the other stuff, it's, it's going to take a lot of hard work to pull back in a way that, you know, um, pulling the top rate up that George W. Bush lowered was not, I mean, it was hard work, but it's not impossible work. Yeah, I mean, the flip side of this is that it's always, it's hard to predict the future. You know, people can talk themselves into like a state of mania uh, with doing these things. And and I think like the biggest variable in terms of like how permanent does any of this become is really just like who wins elections in the future um, and what do they want to do. Uh, it's not, it's just not the case that like Congress can bind the hands of future Congresses in real meaningful ways. Um, in the past, like, all tax legislation has later been revised. Um, some things, an interesting element of stickiness, I always think, is inflation indexing of tax brackets, right? So before Ronald Reagan was president, tax brackets had a nominal fixed anchor. And so that meant that over time, in effect, there was just always a tax increase on everybody. And that really put, like, a thumb on the scale, uh, of the sort of New Deal coalition because it meant that Congress could always be expanding programs and then also always be passing modest tax cuts and rarely, if ever, raising taxes on anybody. And you'll see from, like, FDR through Kennedy Johnson, it's like a straight downward <laughs> spiral of tax cutting, but also the government is getting bigger. Uh, Reagan changes that and he starts indexing the tax brackets to inflation. And that's a... Um, that was a thing that it was hard to go back on because, frankly, it was it's so reasonable. You know what I mean? Like, why shouldn't the tax brackets be indexed to inflation? Nobody was going to say as a politician, like, aha, I liked it better the other way because it let me hide the ball on, on what I was really doing. But that made it, like, way harder to expand government programs. 
One of the things that that this bill does is it keeps indexing the tax brackets to inflation, but it indexes them to a slower-growing version of inflation. And so one possible long-term outcome of that is that this same inflation index principle will end up being applied to spending programs, which would be a way of, of cutting spending on the fly. One possibility is that the indexing will be undone so that the middle class is spared a, a tax increase. Another possibility is that this is going to just be how taxes work in the future and that there's going to be a, a slight upward trajectory on, on middle class taxes forever. Because that turns out to be the kind of thing that it's kind of hard to change. At least I would have thought it would be hard to change. But Republicans have put it in this bill, and it's it's attracted very little notice, it seems to me. Like, there's so much more, like, there's been like a million takes about the impact of this bill on graduate students compared to the impact of this bill on, like, literally everybody. <laughs> and I guess, and I, from a journalism standpoint, I sort of see it, right? It's like graduate students and college professors is like a defined constituency of people who will read and share articles, whereas, like, everybody, but it's a really small impact, but it hits everybody, is kind of like, uh, you know, no one, like, wants to pay $6 more in taxes, but it's also sort of who cares. But, I mean, I, I really wonder about that, right? Like, it's, it's a, on the one hand, like, a very technical question, like, how should you calculate inflation? On the other hand, it's, like, just a blunt political instrument that takes money from people. You were talking with regards to kind of the, like, predictability that this is a very different approach to the future than, you know, President Obama took. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little more. Yeah, so I, I think one thing, we're already seeing this a little bit, uh, Sarah Cliff was writing about this on, on Twitter, um, is re-examining um, President Obama's era in light of what this tax bill looks like, and particularly the weaponization and the, like, really helping your friends, hurting your enemies aspect of this tax bill. I think if you look back at what President Obama did in 2009, 2010, he asked his constituency bases to take hits, uh, pretty serious ones. Um, you know, in the healthcare debate, uh, he asked the unions to take uh, taxes on Cadillac plans, uh, high, like very good healthcare plans, uh, with the idea that they were too generous. Um, I, I don't believe those have actually taken place yet, but in no way was President Obama like, wink, wink, this will never happen, like the Republican tax cuts. He's clear, him and his advisor are clearly upset it hasn't happened. Um, you know, you think of uh, the bailouts, which were continued, and the kind of punt. I'm a big Dodd Frank fan of for financial reform, but they very much punted on um, foreclosure relief, which really upset community groups. Uh, when they were sending money to the states, uh, one of the things, the ways they sent money to the states was race to the top, which encouraged charter schools, which pissed off teachers unions. Dara, you've written and talked a lot about immigration in that period. He stepped up a lot of enforcement upsetting a lot of people with the idea you could get a grand bargain. And there's a lot of reasons why President Obama did that, in part because I think he thought he could overcome the hyper-partisanship, which was really solidifying in that era. Um, but for this bill, there's nothing like that. It is very clearly like we are going to put our knee on the throats of blue America to give you money, red America. And to the extent we don't do that, we are lying to juke rules, and we will make sure we have your back in the long run. And it's a very different orientation towards politics than Democrats are comfortable with, and I'm curious how they will react to that in the future. I mean, there's a there's a sort of long-term asymmetry between the parties in regard to this, where, uh, you know, moderate Democrats in Congress have an independent constituency, right, that is separate from party leadership and separate from, from the base. Republicans have vulnerable members. They have more moderate members. But there's no equivalent of the sort of, like, uh, 
lobbying firms that are run by former Democratic members of Congress who provide the fundraising base for centrist Democrats. There's no, there's nobody like out there who who is like stomach for these guys. So Republicans tend to govern from the right and squeeze their moderate members who are in a vulnerable position, whereas Democrats tend to try to govern from not not the right of the country, but from the right of their caucus, right? Democratic presidents from the sort of from the central pivot point and then they and then they whip the left into line. Trump though also is just a seems like a very Schmidtian person who sees the world in friend-enemy terms and is not interested characterologically in being seen as a compromiser, where it's obviously Barack Obama's self-image. I mean, however much as a as a left-wing person you may feel that Obama was like a sellout squish, his self-presentation of himself was as more of a sellout squish <laughs> than he really was. You know what I mean? Like that was like that was the the Obama sales job was that like he's the galactic brain who encompasses all <laughs> all the potential <laughs> points of view are like embodied in his his own policy wisdom. Whereas Trump is like not like that, right? He's like I am on your side, and that means he's not on the side of these other guys, and is like crystal clear about friends and enemies in a way that, I mean, Democrats have historically not done that. I I think basically because the coalition behind the Democratic Party is more diverse, and so it's uncomfortable to try to draw lines that way. Uh, But maybe it's just a political tactic, and and they'll go a, a different way in the future. This is, for the record, Uh, The reason that during the 2016 campaign, there was a difference between the people who were saying, well, maybe in office Trump will be like a bargain maker because he's a deal maker and the people who had actually read Trump's books in which it was clear that when he said he was a deal maker, what he meant is I win, you lose. (laughs) Right. I mean, the the art of the deal is an interesting book. And it's it's like um, I, I really the phrase getting to yes is kicked around a lot by congressional Republicans. And it makes me mad because I actually really like the the book getting to yes, which is about um, how you can have win win compromises. And the art of the deal is like the opposite of that. Right. Like the whole thesis of the art of the deal. It's like bragging about all the ways he screwed over counterparties in his life rather than about ways he's like constructed <laughs> deals that were mutually beneficial to everybody. And I think that that is a um I don't I don't think that's a great way to think about politics. That actually uh, we should probably take a break and I think that is a good pivot to uh, what we're going to be discussing in the last segment which is a way that Democrats are refusing to understand that there are win-win compromises. We're here for a message from one of our really smart sponsors, The Economist. Uh, they know how much I value their insights and into stories that shape our world, so they're offering all you Weeds fans a free copy. Uh, as someone who, who loves to get down and into the weeds and stuff, The Economist gives you a chance to dig deeper into what's really going on in the world. If they don't have a horse in the race. You can trust them to bring you straight-up facts on a range of vital topics, from politics, technology, science, the environment, and obviously economics. Uh, this is one of my favorite magazines. It really has been for, for a long time. I remember I was, in, I was in high school. I would go up to the school library and check out their issues. You know, the fact is we, we only cover so much here on the podcast, so do yourself a favor. Visit www.economist.com slash weeds to sample a free copy of The Economist right now. Uh, they got the lowdown on, on the forces that impact our lives and shape our world. They don't waste a single word. They cut through the noise to help you stay entertained and well-informed. So dig into The Economist today. Visit www.economist.com slash weeds or, you know, just Google Economist Weeds. Uh, either way, sample your free copy. Check them out.
So Dara wrote a great piece, I think, about... That many people did not think was great, turns out. Yes, it was contentious. No, but that's (laughs) the best pieces are a little bit contentious. And this is about, you know, how Democrats and progressive institutions have been handling uh, allegations against John Conyers and Al Franken, but more broadly, like the reality that it's like, I don't know, there's a lot of people working in progressive politics and some of them... They're maybe not such great people. Right. I mean, one of the things that's going to become clear as we get a little more distance from the cultural moment we're in, the post-Weinstein moment, if you will, um, but isn't as clear right now is that there really has been a rapid shift, not in what people think about whether sexual harassment is wrong, but about what people think, what men think about, to speak very broadly, how pervasive men think sexual harassment is and how likely women feel that sexual harassment will be treated as a problem if they come forward. This idea of the open secret that like, yeah, everyone says this is bad, but there's this one dude in the organization who we all know is a problem, but we're all going to pretend he's not a problem because he's just too important to us. That kind of tacit agreement seems to be falling apart. And the problem with this kind of rapid cultural shift is that every many people individually have changed their minds on this. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the organizations that they're a part of have like instituted that shift in their rules, that they've actually started behaving collectively in the way that people now individually think that they should act. And it turns out that you actively need to change institutions in order to make those kind of cultural changes a thing. So we're now at that point where the individuals who have realized that, like, this is an urgent cultural matter probably need to be shifting to, okay, how do we how do we live this reality? And unfortunately, the Democratic Party, you know, specifically congressional Democrats, and, you know, maybe this will change by the time this goes to air. There does appear to be pressure on John Conyers to resign in particular, but they do not appear to be embracing the notion of, it's time for everyone to look inward. It's time for everyone to realize that all institutions have this problem, that all institutions are complicit, that if we believe that women need to be safe in the workplace, we should make that a reality. They instead appear to be reacting to this with a mixture of, well, we want to protect due process, we want to protect our members, and but the other guys are worse. Um, and I, you know, obviously in a world in which Donald Trump is president and Roy Moore is, you know, currently leading in the polls for the Alabama Senate, it may very well be true that the Republicans who are not suffering consequences are accused of worse things than the Democrats who might be suffering consequences. Although it is worth noting that Joe Barton of Texas uh, is a Republican who just announced he was not running for re-election after some stuff came to light, some of which was just standard, you know, sex scandal nude photo stuff, but some of which did include him appearing to harass a constituent. But the kind of idea that the progressive cultural energy that has been unleashed over the last six weeks is something that Democrats ought to embrace, even at a short-term cost to their members, is something that the Democratic Party hasn't really understood as a political win for them. And I, you know, personally, I think that that's likely to result in less energy from the kind of resistance movement uh, being directed at Democrats than would be the case if Democrats really embraced this as like, yes, this is our cause in addition to yours. 
Right. Um, this week seemed to be a slight change in, in the momentum. Um, Matt Lauer was let go in advance of the reporting. So not it was not a reaction like, we got to contain this blowback. We got to fire this guy. He was let go in advance of it. And Garrison Keillor, I don't believe there was actually a story that broke about his abuses, but he was let go anyway. So it seems like potentially that uh, institutions are starting to make changes on the affirmative. Now, what's going to encourage that, lock it in, put pressure to build that? You need institutions. And when I think about what who is like the agent of change that's helped made this moment possible? And it's almost like a personification of the Whisper Network. Um, mm-hmm. You see this in a lot of the reporting, a lot of the Harvey Weinstein reporting. You see people on air, on TV, at award shows, like making jokes about Harvey Weinstein, but clearly trying to warn people. Um, the great report uh, from Vox about Glenn Thrush, you know, there's a very visceral part of the story where um, a woman's in a bathroom texting her friend saying she's scared of where she's at and how, how, do, how do they get help. Um, that Whisper Network is a, is a very... Uh, in the James Scott language, it's a weapon of the week. It's a very powerful way of resisting oppression and, and domination, but it's fundamentally reactive. It's not an institutional thing. Um, and it does, re- it requires the social capital of being plugged into, say, a network of like-minded women professionals in your field. Absolutely. And it's harder to do in, in waitressing in the same way or, or whatnot. There's different kinds of social capital issues in, in different kinds of industries. Um, so you need some sort of institution, and the Democratic Party seems to be like the institution that wants to be that way. Um, and it's not clear what, and, and it can't just be a political party, but the political party is very much in a moment where it believes Donald Trump is a harasser and abuser of women and wants to um, secure women votes and, and do things. So there's a perfect marriage of interest there. And it's not clear what other institutions are going to step into this. I don't, can we, can we swear on this? There, there's yeah. the, there's the poop, I was going to say the poopy male media list that we floated around, but it's, it's the shitty, shitty, ma- shitty okay. man. The number two list. Man. Um, that seemed to be doing some of the work. And there's actually a really a big debate about whether or not to make that public as an institutional thing. Um, but crucially, I think that's not a real stopgap. You need a political force, and the Democrat Party needs to be part of that coalition. I've been fascinated by some of the team spirit of the grassroots response to your piece, right? Yes. So, so to me— I 100% understand. I I really sympathize with people who do not want to throw contested general elections to the opposition party regardless. I I have – I do not agree with any policy positions that Roy Moore or, as far as I'm aware, any other statewide election winner in Alabama ever has won. But I 100% sympathize with the view that if you have spent your whole life voting for Richard Shelby and Jeff Sessions, that the right thing to do is to vote for Roy Moore, whether or not he's a child abuser, uh, because public policy is really important. Uh, So I, I get that, right? And I get why Democrats did not want uh, to see Robert Menendez go down on corruption charges and be replaced by by Chris Christie. I, I get that, too. The thing about John Conyers, right, is that if John Conyers resigns tomorrow, or if John Conyers simply doesn't run for re-election, or if John Conyers, he's, he's like an old guy, and he might just say, hey, I'm an old guy, I'm not going to run anymore. That's a safe Democratic seat, right? There is no universe in which that seat is not going to be held by a Democrat. Uh, Al Franken's seat in Minnesota Senate, I mean, that's a that's a purple state. That's contestable. Republican could win it. But if Franken were to step down, the vacancy would be filled by the state's governor, who is a Democrat. Uh, Minnesota, a little bit eccentrically, actually, has a ton of statewide Democratic Party elected officials. So it's, it's not like there would be a... a a millstone around the necks of the Democratic Party in terms of holding seats. But psychologically and emotionally, a lot of people's reaction to it seemed to be that, like, it would be unfair for Democrats 
to like take an L on these charges when Republicans aren't taking an L on Trump and more, right? And I I see where that's coming from, but it's like that is really misguided. Like there is a real tension between like partisan election wins and policy gains and your views about individuals as a whole, but that's actually not what's happening here, right? Like To the extent that Democrats want to go to Alabama and want to tell wavering Republicans, you should have really serious doubts about Roy Moore. This is like a really big deal. You should reconsider like your lifelong voting pattern and maybe stay home, maybe write someone in, maybe vote for Doug Jones. The fact that Democrats seem hesitant to like clean their own house, it undermines the partisan message the Democrats are trying to shop. It doesn't it doesn't help to be like, oh, you stand by your guy, so we stand by our guy. That's that's what Moore is counting on, right? It's like everybody just going back to their corner and saying, fuck it, right? And to the extent that you don't think that should be Alabama voters' reaction, to the extent that you're like beating your head, you're saying like, how could white women have voted for Trump, right? It's like, that that is how, right? It's, it's exactly that partisan issue. That's not to say that like, the charges that have been made against Franken are as egregious as the ones that have been made against Trump. But that psychological dynamic is exactly what drove people back to Trump, what drives people back to more. I mean, I do think that it's true that people's sense of both sides do it can often be kind of divorced from policy reality. I, you know, I've sat and thought about this, you know, because I've I've been thinking about the reaction to my piece, and it does seem to me that partisan Democrats are still deeply angry about the way that Hillary Clinton's emails were treated during the campaign. And, you know, there's there is a conviction that Donald Trump won in large part because the media insisted on portraying Clinton's emails as a problem in a way that made it hard to say that Donald Trump was going to be uniquely unethical. And I think that for one thing, there's an important difference between the kind of appearance of impropriety without any specific acts of impropriety being unearthed in the in the email scandal with the actual specific allegations that have come out against, against Conyers and Franken. But I also think that this kind of attention economy thing you know, it ends up getting very absolutist very quickly, right? Like, I, it's funny because the headline on my piece was Democrats have a sexual harassment problem. And a lot of the people, even people who otherwise like the piece, said, well, the, the headline should really be all institutions have a sexual harassment problem. And it's like, that is literally the all lives matter response, right? <laughs> if you're saying all institutions, that does include the Democratic Party. And I would go as far as to say that Democrats have a unique sexual harassment problem in that they are trying to protect their own members while simultaneously running against sexual harassment in a political context. But this kind of insistence that any acknowledgement of wrongdoing is going to be transmuted in the electorate's minds into, well, both sides are bad, and so it doesn't matter if I vote, it doesn't matter who I vote for, I might as well vote for the guy who's going to you know, drain the swamp. I don't necessarily think that that's wrong. I think that that's a very hypothetical cost as opposed to the very real benefit of women will be safer in the workplace. And the willingness to throw women, particularly women who are working professionally in progressive and democratic circles under the bus because you're worried about the hypothetical cost of losing a seat somewhere seems to be a moral calculus that I really wish more people would wrestle with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
the Democratic Party is looking for new messaging. It's looking for new ways to engage voters. And it's crucially a lot of people inside are thinking, how do we deal with economic issues and how do we deal with, you know, gender and race issues? And these are two different things. And how do we, like, well, women are harassed in the workplace. And it's an issue of economic freedom and gender freedom that they're not. Seems like a really good way to do that. And it's a good message to take. Um, I think it's morally right. And I think it's politically smart for them to do because that's the side that they want to have. Uh, a year ago now, because it's after the election, um, I was reading uh, Susan Faldi's Backlash for the first time. Because I was like, was, is this year going to see an epic backlash against uh, the complicated advancements uh, feminism made under Obama? And that hasn't happened yet, or at least not has happened in a major way yet. You saw the Women's March, and now you're seeing these things. Uh, now you're seeing this wave of uh, backlash against uh, harassment. There's going to be a one-time cost to Democrats. I mean, the other thing is, the implication on both sides do it is that it's like kind of always with us and kind of pervasive. But the advantage of the Democrats owning it in a concrete way is to say, no, you can't run on the Democratic ticket if you do this. We will fire you. We will not run you. If you are elected and then do it or it comes out you've done it, then you have to go. Um, there, It's a one-time cost. It's, 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 it's tough. But like there was a period where you could be a segregationist in the Democratic Party from the 60s to 80s and be in good standing. And that is no longer true, uh, and that is good. And I hopefully in 10 or 20 years, we'll say the same thing about harassers or, you know, quote unquote, skirt chasers or people who are exacting gendered violence in the workplace. Yes. 10 or 20 years seems super, super optimistic to me. But, <laughs> you know, I do, I do think it's Let's worth— Let's just make it till next week. I, I do think it's worth highlighting um, that not everyone who was worried this time last year about being specifically targeted under a under Donald Trump's America has, in fact, been equally targeted. And— you know, I do think that the fact that women as a political force have stayed very visible and very organized. And when we talk about women, we're largely talking about um, middle-aged suburban women have really been mobilizing as part of the resistance, not exclusively white women, although that's often the way it's been portrayed. But it is a very specific segment of women who have really become hyper-politicized this year. That is probably kind of forestalled some of the backlash that might otherwise have been coming. But I do think it's worth pointing out that right now, women are not being marginalized in the same way that, like, immigrants, that Muslims, that a lot of other groups have been. Um, that doesn't mean that, like, complacency, you know, again, it's very clearly a fact that they are a salient political group. The reason that the particular women who have become mobilized as part of the resistance is relevant, though, and, you know, I kind of assume that it would be good for Democrats to harness this energy by calling themselves the party of the resistance, by doing things that indicate that they really align with progressive ideals. But it's also true that the middle-aged suburban women are also ones who grew up with harassment as a pervasive thing and have, if not, you know, made their peace with it. Many of them do believe that it's worth you know, that, that that's something that people can live with if it means more important priorities get done. You know, a lot of the women who who have, you know, I got a lot of email responses like, I'm older than you are. I probably suffered through more harassment than you have. And I don't think that it's worth kicking out Al Franken for this because he's an important voice against Trump, that kind of thing. So maybe it is the case that this particular segment of women who may not have been super politically active is not going to care all that much. It is, however, true that younger Americans really do, you know, that that the generation that kind of sees this as an unacceptable thing 
is theoretically, you know, one that Democrats are trying to not just encourage to continue to vote, but trying to keep mobilized as like the ground forces and trying to keep them from peeling off to, you know, the left in many cases. And so I think there is kind of a short-term, medium-term, where do we invest in grassroots energy question that I don't think is happening explicitly in the Democratic Party, but maybe it should. And I mean, you know, more generally, I mean, something an out-of-power party always wrestles with is that grassroots energy is necessary to win and to regain elections, but it's also dangerous, right? That if nobody is paying attention to politics, then the senior members are necessarily safe in their own, you know, positions in the hierarchy. When new people get engaged or when people who were peripherally engaged become more engaged, when new people get elected who were not in office previously, that just, it has the effect of shaking things up and of changing what's going on. And there's just there's always ambiguity about it, right? I mean, Republicans were obviously glad that Tea Party activists came out and helped them win elections in 2010. They have also had a lot of mixed feelings. I I think would be generous about that kind of that kind of mobilization, and that's you know, I think part of what you are seeing here, right? That like. You see, particularly in in the House, where the the leaders of the Democratic caucus have been in position a long time, where there is a lot of uncertainty about them from the newer members of the caucus, that it's like they would like to win more seats, but more seats would, by definition, mean more new members. And the new members that they have don't seem to like the leaders very much. And it's just like, you know, it's a problem, right? And like, at some level, you have to decide, like, if you want to win, and that means taking some risks. Yeah, I mean, I do think that the other kind of problem with grassroots energy is even if you do harness and sustain it, you're not necessarily bringing people to a higher information level. There have sometimes been, although it doesn't seem to be to be seizing the party as a whole, hints of kind of a permanent purge mentality on the right, where even the people who got elected in the wave of 2010, if they've been in office for a while and haven't yet dismantled the federal government, are seen as part of the problem. And that's obviously something that you want to avoid as a political party, both for ideological and self-preservation reasons. But you know, the question of how to turn grassroots energy into something that remains on your side, which the right still very much is with Republicans, but understands how to wield power when they get it is, a, you know, it's it's an extremely difficult problem. And it's one that Democrats have often responded to by saying, well, they will have to understand that they have to shut up the minute that we get into power. I don't know that that's going to be feasible with this current wave because it is not exclusively about politics. It's also about culture. It's also about, you know, what values are you encouraging in society? But, you know, I think it's something that it would be very easy for Democrats to fix simply by saying, well, we are the party where sexual harassers don't get to come into office. That is why you should understand, you know, we're giving you this. That is why you should accept that we have to make some political compromises on the floor of the Senate. And with that, we should probably wrap up. Uh, but there is there is no need to compromise on recommending the Weeds podcast uh, to your friends uh, or joining our Facebook group. Uh, we are taking questions for our upcoming Q&A episode in there. We also have a new exciting Weeds newsletter, Vox.com slash Weeds hyphen newsletter. Uh, it's wonderful. I write it so you know that it's wonderful. It's really great. I just signed up for it. 
there you go. There you go. Thank you, guys. Uh, thank you. Thank you to, to Mike, uh, to Peter Leonard uh, for producing. Thank you to Dara. And we will be back next week. <laughs>